0: A fundamental conviction of authentic Christianity is that God speaks. Atheistic secularists contend that there is no sacred realm. Practical deists say, yes, there is a supernatural realm, but there is no communication between the two realms, between this realm and that one. In desperation, we may float a a prayer heavenward now and then, But our prayers are like a little girl sitting in the living room at home with her play cell phone talking to her daddy at work and thinking that it's actually getting through, that he's actually sitting there at his desk at the office and hearing what she has to say. There's no communication. And it doesn't go the other way either. He cannot pick up his real phone and call her on her play phone. And this is a a picture of the universe, many would say. If there is a God, there's no conversation back and forth. There cannot be. There is no connection between that world and ours. But the biblical worldview, in contrast, insists that there is communication from the supernatural realm, not just impressions, not just feelings, but actual authoritative words of truth. Too many self-professing Christian churches reject the notion of divine revelation, and they pursue then what we might call theology from below. That is, they invent their own ideas about God as they go along. This church, thankfully, believes in theology from above. We believe that God gives us His Word as a sacred trust of objective, external, infallible truth. And because we believe this, it is utterly essential that we carefully and objectively determine what he has actually said in his in this trust of truth. In a large corporate office building, employees may speak on occasion of a decision as coming from upstairs. No way. A free day of vacation on Friday for everyone. Who came up with that idea? And the other employee says it comes from upstairs. Now, this office building may be a single-story building. There may be no upstairs in this building, but we know what that means, don't we? It comes from upstairs. It comes with authority. Someone has spoken and said something that applies to everyone. In like manner, as we practice theology from above, it is vital that we determine the authenticity of the revelation on which we base our salvation. We don't believe in a theology from above that it rests on whatever we feel like believing. There is objective, historical, actual truth that God has entrusted to us and it is vital that we do the work to understand where it has come from and that it is authentic. It is this very agenda that exercises the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians you'll make your way back to this book as we continue our way through Galatians chapter 1, we looked at verses 1 through 10 last week, uh, moving into verses 11 and 12, which we will reconsider again today, but in the first 10 verses of Galatians 1, Paul insists that there is only one gospel, one genuine message of salvation from our sins by faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So remember what Paul says there in that first part of chapter 1, even if an angel came to you in glorious light and proclaimed a gospel different than the one that we've proclaimed, let that angel be accursed. He comes from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. There is one gospel. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. It's not just, well, it's his opinion, let him say what he wants to say. Let him be accursed. This is serious stuff. Paul is not on a people-pleasing mission here. He's fighting for the truth. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is not on a people-pleasing mission. He is fighting for the true revelation that God has given to his people. Now his thesis, as we mentioned last week, and we come back to it today, his thesis in this first part of the book is found here in verses 11 and 12. Here's his point. This is the the point on which he insists. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I think it's relatively safe to say that Paul is answering accusations against him by teachers who were undermining his ministry to the Galatian churches. I don't believe we're reading too much into the text to see that as we consider what he says through this book. Paul rebukes the Galatians, in fact, for being swayed by these false teachers, chapter 1 and verse 6. I'm astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. It's not a legitimate different gospel. It's a false gospel. There is only one. I'm astonished that you're listening to these teachers. In verses 11 and 12 then he counters these teachers, these false teachers with this thesis. Negatively. The message he preached did not have its source in man. It was indeed theology from above, not from below. Secondly, it came from upstairs. It did come from above, meaning it may be their opinion that they have the truth, but their theology comes from below he insists on this in this passage the message that he proclaimed was a divine revelation about who jesus christ truly is the risen savior the reigning lord or taking the phrase there a revelation of jesus christ you see there at the end of verse 12 If we took it a bit differently, it could mean Jesus himself revealed the gospel to Paul, and of course both ideas are true. Jesus is the one revealing, and Jesus is the revelation. He is the one that we see ultimately in salvation. So simply said, Paul's message of salvation by faith in Jesus, crucified for the forgiveness of sins and risen in victory over death, was a true message that came from above. It came from God himself. Now in verse 13 and following through to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul will labor to defend this thesis in response to these detractors who were claiming that he preached a corrupt gospel. He was preaching a gospel from below, something that came out of his own thinking. These false teachers apparently claim to speak with the authority of Jerusalem-based apostles. We're drawing this conclusion by reading into it a bit, but this seems to be fairly evident. So their pitch to the Galatians, if we could put it together rightly, and I think we'll see this as the book unfolds, their pitch to the Galatians is both negative and positive. Negatively, Paul is really not an authentic apostle. The message that he preached to you, he learned from the real apostles. And he got it wrong. He twisted it somewhat so that it's really not authentic, the message that he's been preaching to you. Now positively, they said this, at least from their angle. We have been authorized by the Jerusalem apostles to preach the true gospel of salvation. That is a gospel of salvation that includes strict adherence to the old covenant laws given to Moses strict adherence by the Israelites and strict adherence by converts from among the Gentiles. So Paul, hearing from the same apostles that give us our authority, he twisted the message, we are proclaiming to you the true gospel in Jesus Christ. It includes strict adherence to the Old Covenant. So Paul, if we get that idea in view, this is the message that's now going out to those that he had led to Christ and churches that had been started. He is responding to that now and he is stressing, I did not twist a message that I received from the apostles in Jerusalem. The truth is that God revealed the way of Christ directly to him. Jesus The revelation of Jesus was directly received by Paul and he knows that what he has said to them is the truth. Let me illustrate this. It might help us just to see the, the challenge that he's facing. Let's say a, a young news reporter is seated in the front row of a press conference. And a senator announces at that press conference, con, conference with full authority, announces the repeal of an oppressive law. Our news reporter is there taking down the notes, has heard the word from the mouth of the senator, and takes the story to his editor-in-chief. But while he's standing there explaining what has just happened and reporting this news... There are other reporters who come around him. They surround him, several senior reporters, and they deny this version of events. They claim the senator did not announce the repeal of the law, only how it could be better enforced as they learned this from the most senior reporters on staff who aren't here right now, but we heard it from them. It really wasn't a repeal, just just how it could be better enforced. The young reporter, they insist, was not at the press conference. He only heard about it secondhand, and then he twisted the story because of his inexperience. This is the conversation that's going on. How does our young reporter respond? Hey, guys, I was there. I was sitting right there as this statement was made. I heard it with my own ears. I did not twist a secondhand report that I got from others. I'm reporting the truth. What is in fact the case is that these who are accusing him are doing exactly what they're accusing him of doing. They did receive the information secondhand, and they have twisted it. And so our young reporter fights for The truth. What is more, he says, I'm not all that concerned what you think the senior correspondents took away from that press conference because I was there in the front row and I got it right. In a sense, Paul is in that position and so he is defending the authenticity of his message beginning here in verse 13. The defense starts with this, The source of Paul's gospel is direct revelation from God, not consultation with other apostles. Now that's not something that concerns us a lot as we're gathered here and we read through Galatians. But in this setting, in this situation, that is extremely important and it's important to catch that meaning here. He did not consult with other apostles. Here's his defense, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Paul, I don't think, is proud of the fact that he hotly pursued Christians in an all-out attempt to destroy them. He's simply setting up his argument. He once despised Christ and his universal church. Verse 14, And I was at that time advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. We need to understand, Paul was a brilliant young man. He was a dedicated student of the Holy Scriptures and of the rabbinical teachings of his Jewish elders. He was extremely zealous for God and for Israel. Sadly, this was a zeal without knowledge, which caused great damage to the infant church. Paul was, in a sense, like a wolf hunting a newborn fawn. He was after it to kill it, to devour it, to put its life to an end. And just not the main point of the text by any means but I think a worthy application at this point it's a reminder that our strongly held opinions and sincere convictions may be dead wrong. Sincerity is not the proof of authenticity. The key as Paul develops this is that we must come to God on His terms. We do not determine those terms. He reveals them. So no matter how sincere and convicted we are, we can be wrong if we are not basing that on what God has revealed. And we need to be very careful to discern the difference between our opinions and what God has said. Paul was very sincere, very earnest, very zealous, and very wrong. Verse 15, he continues, But... That's who I was, that's where I was at, that was my intensity, my wrong direction. But, verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not immediately consult with anyone is his main point. He's been working himself to this point. But he obviously here in verses 15 and 16 refers to his conversion. We read a version of it here this morning from Acts 26. The historical account comes in Acts chapter 9. So virtually foaming at the mouth, Paul violently sought to crush the church. He despised Jesus with all of his heart. And yet from eternity past, and yet... With that focus, that's who he was, what he was doing. And yet, from eternity past, the sovereign Lord had chosen Paul to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior to the Gentiles. It was not a matter that Jesus looked down from heaven and said, wow, this Paul really means business. I need a guy in my toolbox like that. I need a missionary like that guy because he really goes after it hard. I think I'm going to change his mind. God knew Paul from eternity past. From before he was born, he was God's chosen instrument. I'll tell you, when you looked at Paul's life, that's the last thing you would conclude. This is a man who hates Christianity for life. He will do everything possible to stop the Christian faith. But from his perspective, God had chosen him from eternity past. He's mine. And it pleased the Lord. It was the Lord's intention that mattered. Do you see verses 14 and 15? What is it? What's filled with... What, how is it filled up? I did this. I did that. This was my life. This is what I was doing. And we come to, verse, to the end of this, to verse 16 and it's what God is doing. It's God's pleasure, God's choice, God's calling that he would go to the Gentiles. What a beautiful change. His, indica- his agenda is indicated by this last phrase of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Getting back to it and back to his point. When he was converted, a glorious event A clear indication of the transformational power of God's saving grace. But he did not consult with anyone, or literally, with flesh and blood. He didn't consult with people. But, verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. On the map here you just get a sense of where these locations are. So he's in Jerusalem with authority traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians. But it it would appear that it's right before he reaches the city that Christ appears to him and reveals himself to Paul. Paul does not turn around and go back to Jerusalem. That's his stress here, his emphasis here. After Jesus appeared to him he had no contact with the apostles at all. He received it directly from Christ. In fact, you would ask, how on earth does Paul even come to this place to know what is the meaning of the gospel? It didn't, it didn't come because he went back to Jerusalem. So We just look at a, a chart of his life here. That We'll work it out in these next couple of weeks uh, in our gathering here, but here in chapter 1. These dates are approximate, it's difficult to give precise years because of the way that uh, dating takes place uh, in the biblical text, but somewhere around 34 to 37, he preaches and ministers in Damascus, but then makes this sojourn into Arabia for uh, parts of three years. We're not sure exactly how long, but parts of three years he is there. Where did Paul go in Arabia? We don't know. What did Paul do while he was there? We're not told. But if he was involved in evangelism, Luke makes no mention of it in the book of Acts. Most likely, Paul spent much of this time recalibrating his theology to see Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. That would appear to be what he's doing during this period of time. And there could indeed be ongoing revelations in teaching and instructing him in how to understand the existing scriptures that are before him. So again, in verses 13 and 14, this is what I did. But in verses 15 and 16, this is what God did. And when he did this, verse 17 I did not go up to Jerusalem, but I went into Arabia. It was Paul's pleasure to persecute Christians as a zealous adherent to the Mosaic law. It was God's pleasure to change Paul's heart and to use him to evangelize the Gentiles. And he developed him and matured him in this desert experience, in this period of sojourn. He revealed His Son to me, we read in verse 16. He was pleased to reveal His Son to me. You see the marginal note there. That it could be read, and probably I think a good argument could be made, that it should be read. He revealed Jesus in me. So Jesus was indeed revealed to Him. There's no argument there. But He seems to be saying that Jesus was revealed in me. It's a beautiful statement if we take it at face value. Jesus invaded Paul's life nothing was ever the same again the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformative power and Paul says that was revealed in me Christ in me the hope of glory was now his experience do you know experientially what Paul means when you hear that statement does that make sense to you Do you say, I get that, I understand that. Does the risen Christ possess your life by His Spirit? Has He invaded it for good, for joy, for victory over sin? Is the presence of Christ through His Spirit living with you and in you and transforming you? It's a very important question because this is what the Gospel does. It does not merely give us a few facts about how we should see the world. It is a transforming power through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul thought that he was a keeper of God's law. In fact, no one would argue uh, differently that was living near him. He was, however, not a keeper of God's law. He was a self-dependent moralist. He was a good guy who did the things that the Bible said to do. But he didn't realize that he really was not keeping that law in its fullness. And he was depending not on God as his Savior, but on his own good deeds. He goes a great length in the Philippians to explain just that. In fact, all of the good that he was doing, he says to the Philippians, was actually harming him. Because it kept him from God. You know, when you really have a view of yourself that I'm a pretty good person and I do all of the right things, that's a good way to cancel God's saving grace in your life because you don't need him. As Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Paul learned that and now Christ was in him. He found Jesus Christ as his true righteousness, not works, but by the righteousness of Jesus imputed to him, he was now free in Christ, delivered from the bondage that the law brings through disobedience. Now we see in verse 18, Paul Paul's continuing ministry confirms the independence of the revelation that he'd received. So we gave the the main point here. I did not consult with the apostles. What is more, verse 18, continuing on, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Cephas being the Aramaic name for Peter, and he remained with him for 15 days. Well, if you go back in time, would that ever be a fun moment to be in that conversation for 15 days to hear Peter, who walked with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, sat there while Jesus was teaching, saw the start of the church, talking to Paul, this rabbinic scholar who's just come out of Arabia, having put together that Jesus was true Messiah, revealed in all of the Scriptures. To see these two interacting and conversing with one another must have been absolutely fascinating. A power conference, sharing with one another, helping each other, lifting each other up. But what's Paul's point again? I just went to visit him. He was not ordained by Peter. He was not authorized or even trained by Peter. He went up to visit Peter. He had received the revelation of Christ. And it was as authentic, as rich, and as whole as what Peter experienced. All of us would vote to be with Peter To see Jesus in person. But when it comes to the truth, Peter had no corner on it. Paul had received the same revelation. And the two men put their theologies together and certainly built up and edified one another, we would assume. They didn't get together for 15 days to talk about the Super Bowl. They were talking theology. They were putting it together. They were undoubtedly talking about mission to Gentiles and to Jews, and how this should be understood, perhaps even some debate. But as they met together, it was as peers. That's a hard point for Paul to make, but that's the point he's making. I went to visit him as a peer. Verse 19 but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, obviously, there's something going on here. There were some charges that he lied and that he did receive the gospel directly from the apostles, not from this vision of Christ. Who knows what's behind all of that. But what he's stressing here is I did see James, the Lord's brother. Jesus had brothers. And I saw James there at the church in Jerusalem, and I visited with Peter, but I did not go to get ordained. I did not go to receive their authority. I heard the message myself. That's what he's stressing. Then, verse 21, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now that's quite an abbreviation. Such wonderful things happen. We'd love to know much more about it. But in this stretch of time, again, somewhat estimated as specific dates, but in this pretty lengthy stretch of time, he went actually in reverse order. He went first into Cilicia. Remember what happened there? In, in Cilicia, that was where he, he was in Jerusalem, and he just about lost his life. And the believers said, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get out of Jerusalem, but you've got to get out of Judea. And so he went back to his hometown in Cilicia, the town of Tarsus. And he stayed there somewhere in the range of eight years, completely below the radar. We don't really know what he did there. We don't know if there, we certainly was sharing Christ with people and continuing to work out his theology and to think and to grow and mature, but we don't really have much of, it was a time of obscurity. Barnabas, you remember, here's where Syria comes in. He was at the church at Antioch in Syria, and he needed help. There were Gentiles coming to Christ in such numbers, and there was a call upon a depth of theology in that church at Antioch that he thought, who can I get to help me here? And he thought of Saul of Tarsus went and found him and brought him to Antioch, and the two together ministered the word there for somewhere in the range of a year, perhaps some parts of two years. Now notice what stress stresses here, verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So somewhere in in our way of determination, he'll refer to 14 years here, but in our way of determination, probably a full 13-year period of time, Paul's, that is from Paul's conversion... Until he goes back up to Jerusalem, chapter 2 and verse 1. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. During that period of time, the churches in Judea could not even identify Paul by by faith. They could not identify him personally. Now, they'd been hearing things in an ongoing way. They were hearing things. This one was persecuting us. They all knew about Saul of Tarsus. The rabbi who would take you down given the opportunity. They were all aware of him. But they, they keep hearing that the one who was once persecuting us is now proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But they, didn't even, they couldn't pick him out of a lineup. What is he saying? I didn't get my theology from them. I got it directly from Christ for this 13 14 year period of my life I had no ordination from the apostles I had no confirmation from the churches in Judea these false teachers that are coming to you and telling you I don't have the gospel they weren't there they are actually the ones who are getting it wrong and twisting it I got it directly from Christ And then he will move in in chapter 2 and put that together with the apostles that were there in Jerusalem and how the relationship supported itself. How both were seeing the same revelation. But you see the point here in chapter 1. It doesn't apply to us directly because it's a squabble between them, but what is important for us to see is that Paul stresses, I received it directly from Christ. And so, by way of illustration, back to our young reporter, I was sitting on the front row. I heard what the senator said. I really am not concerned what you think others have said and that you are accusing me of getting it wrong. I heard it with my own ears. I know what I heard. I know this is what has been said. And it's confirmed over and again. That's the position that Paul is in. I heard it. I received it. Now, again, on one level, this passage details an ancient church squabble that has really little to do with us. We come here pretty comfortable with the authority of the Apostle Paul. We recognize so much of our theology is based on what he has said. And we believe, as a church, that that he did, in fact, receive revelation from God. But in this conversation that now misses us somewhat, because it's not a particular debate with us, Paul does display the importance God's people must place on the integrity of revelation which is received from God. Paul has not yet begun to detail the differences between him and the false teachers, We'll get into that more as we work our way through the book. He's not there yet. He's not really said much about that. There's little hints here and there. But he is teaching us that what is of first importance, before we debate what the gospel is, is that we establish that God has indeed spoken. He reveals truth. And he revealed his son to Paul by means of direct revelation. Everything hinges on the historical reality of divine revelation and utter truthfulness. Again, Paul has not begun to work out the content of that message just yet. But we see that truth is of eternal consequence. And so while this squabble may have little to do with us today, it may have a lot to do with you and how you come into this congregation today. Do you see the utter necessity of truth? And do you recognize that its source is of utmost importance? We are, just by our very nature, trained to depend upon our own ideas, our own thinking, our own way of processing life. There's a whole different orientation here, and that is a theology from above where God reveals his truth. And it may be the fact that you're relying on the way you see life that's at the heart of the whole problem in your life. It's a revelation from God of what the truth is and how we're to see life. Now, in this church, we're fairly comfortable with this concept. But let us never forget and never take for granted our theology comes from above. We give ourselves, we labor Week in and week out, day in and day out in our personal lives to prove what God has said. Not to tell Him what He said. Not to take the Bible and twist it into a book that will comfort us and will support us in our opinions. But we take it as a theology that comes from Him as a revelation of the truth. So our faith rests on the truth that God has spoken, that His Word is truth, and that it is necessary for eternal life and victorious living. And if I get out of line with that truth, I call upon nothing but destruction in my life. Now let's, I I need to make this point so that we understand what I've just said and look at the negative side of it. To be careful. What we're not to draw from this passage of Scripture is that we should hear what God has said on our own and not consult with anyone else. We, in distinction from Paul, do receive our revelation from the Apostles. We welcome that. We rejoice in that. It's not the case that everyone receives a direct revelation from God. Paul is simply saying that he did. If he said he did not, he would be a liar. And if we say that we do, we are undoubtedly among the angels described in chapter 1 and verse 8. It is evil Not to receive the message God has spoken, but it is just as evil to say, I speak for God when I don't. For us, it is our joy and crown to receive that gospel from Christ's apostles. What we're looking at today and digging into, and you didn't come to church desperate to think about this, I guarantee you. But what we're figuring out today is the authenticity of the faith that's been entrusted to us. And that is important. We rest everything on it. We stand everything on it. And Paul is giving his own testimony as to the authenticity of what he preached. And so I ask you personally, as I look at my own heart, have you received this revelation of who Jesus is Have you received this revelation of what he has done to reconcile sinners to God? Do you see that not as you figuring out life on your own, this theology from below, my determining who God needs to be for me? But do you see it as a theology from above, a word from God that directs and saves? Have you embraced that message? If you have, then you, like Paul, also have a story. Paul had his. What is yours? I guarantee it's not as dramatic. It's not going to be history-altering as his was. Not as far-reaching. But it ought to be life-changing. If you have truly embraced this message, this revelation of who Jesus Christ is, you cannot be the same again. You can't. It's not just a story. It's not just some facts that we get figured out. It is a life-changing relationship with the living Christ. Is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen a life-transforming, all-of-life-orienting reality for you? Or to say it another way, is your story taken up with His story? Or are you trying to be the author of your little story as a little god of your little world? That's really where Paul was. He was trying to control his world. He was going to stomp out the people who didn't believe what he thought was right. But he had a life-altering, transforming Vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a vision that is available for us in the written words of Scripture. God speaks. And He reveals to us His truth. So we ask, each of us must, can I give clear testimony that like Paul, the message of Jesus' saving grace has rescued me from hell and is transforming me into His likeness? It may not be clearly evident every day. It may be a struggle, indeed will be a struggle with sin on an ongoing basis. But has this message come into your heart? Is Christ in you the hope of glory? Galatians, to Paul's great consternation, were in danger of turning away from the very message that would save them. That's why he says, I'm astonished at you. You would so quickly embrace a different message. And why he labors so carefully here in this section of Scripture to say it is the truth. It's a reminder to each of us to hold to the truth God has revealed. That he's revealed, that he's delivered to us by apostolic authority. May we rejoice in it. May we stand on solid ground as we think of it today. And if you have not embraced this message and this truth, this wisdom from above, it's a gift. Come to him, embrace him, embrace this message today. It will transform your life. And in the end, no matter how you may have in the past raged against God, you will know that you've all along been his child. He's just bringing you to that understanding. But it comes through this trust in that gospel that transforms us and reconciles us to God. Let's pray. Lord, these are well-known truths for this church. Maybe for some here today, it's coming together, it's new, and we thank you for what you may indeed be doing in the lives of some as you draw them to the light of the gospel today. For others of us, this is, just, this is the old message. It's the message that is our identity. We know this as well as we know our own names and we rest in it more than we rest in our own being. But I pray that we'd not forget the trust that has been given to us in your revealed word and the saving grace that is found therein. And may those who are outside of that grace today, who are relying on their own wisdom, their own way, their own strength, I pray that you would bring them to a knowledge of Christ crucified and risen, and that thereby they would be reconciled to you. This is our cry as a church, and may we proclaim this gospel this week faithfully as we relate to others who do not know Christ. And may we live it out as believers. It's transforming power being seen in us. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Would you stand with me and take just a few moments to consider?